this week on the Backtable Podcast. Essentially, in radiology, we say you're going to miss if you don't look for it because you're going to blow right past the abnormality. And I think as long as we are mindful of the symptoms that I've talked about before, which will be pain with flexion, axial loading, sitting down, the typical imaging findings of annular tears or type 1 motor change, and of course, if they're really osteoporotic, then vertebral compression fractures, right? And those are essentially are going to be all of the imaging findings and the clinical symptoms of anterior column pain. So if you're seeing back pain patients, it being the most common cause of back pain, discogenic and vertebrogenic, it has certainly seen you. That's what Dr. Beal says. You might not have seen it, but it has certainly seen you. So if you pay attention to these clinical symptoms and imaging findings, there's no way you'll, you'll miss it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your home for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. Feel free to reach out to us on social media with suggestions about how we can improve the podcast and bring more valuable resources to the interventional community. Now a quick word from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is your host, Jacob Fleming, and today I'm happy to have on the show interventional musculoskeletal radiologist, Dr. Edward Yoon, who's the chief of interventional radiology at Hospital for Special Surgery. Dr. Yoon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have you and for a variety of reasons. And one is the very interesting title that you have, which is Chief of Interventional Radiology at one of the largest orthopedic hospitals in not just the country, but the world. And so I really do want to hear all about that. First, I'd like to just hear about your background and training, where you grew up, what your path has been like, and how did you get interested in the world of musculoskeletal intervention? Yeah, so I originally trained here as a musculoskeletal fellow first before doing a interventional spine and musculoskeletal fellowship with Dr. Uh, Douglas Beal, who you'll be uh, likely joining next year, if I'm not mistaken. And when I was leaving for his fellowship, the chair and other radiologists here at the institution had really encouraged me to come back after completing Dr. Beal's fellowship to kind of bring on a lot of these minimally invasive and novel interventional spine and, and musculoskeletal techniques back to our hospital. One thing I'm really interested in, how did you find out about the fellowship and what drove you? You had already done, you were already going to be completing a musculoskeletal fellowship at a great training institution. So what pushed you to go further and how did you cross paths with Dr. Beal and, and his world? So that's a very, very long story. Just like half of the dudes essentially entering into medical school, I was you know, interested in orthopedic because, sure. you know, if you, yeah, half the guys are like, oh, I want to work with athletes and 
treat sports stars and work for the NFL teams and whatnot. And put screws and stuff. Right, exactly. And fix fractures and all that stuff. So I was actually pretty gung-ho ortho in my medical school, did all my research and all that stuff and set away all my array rotations for the fourth year. And then I did a mini fellowship or a mini rotation my fourth year of medical school in interventional radiology. And I just thought that at the time it was like the coolest thing I ever saw. They were going from kidney to gallbladder to, you know, doing kyphos in the back and doing vessels and all that variety in a single, very like minimally invasive room without cutting a thing. And I thought, oh my God, this is what I need to do. So I got into radiology to do actually interventional radiology. And so I was doing residency, applied for actually interventional radiology fellowship. So back in my time, it was before all the direct pathways. I mean, there were a few around the country, but now it's its own separate residency that you can apply into, right? So I interviewed and all that stuff. And for some reason, after interviewing at, at 15 different locations, I ended up not matching. And the chances of that is, especially for my year, was extremely low because I think the number of spots available for the Interventional Radiology Fellowship and the number of applicants was essentially almost like one-to-one. So I was, I guess, one of the handful that didn't match into IR that year. And especially since I had interviewed at 15 different places, especially most of them at a very kind of high-end academic institutions around the country, I was quite shocked. And for, I was like browsing through like Aunt Minnie, like fellowship, you know, sites and stuff like that. And I saw HSS musculoskeletal fellowship being available for a scramble kind of a thing. And because I was originally interested in orthopedics, I knew the reputation of the institution. I was like very confused because I was just like, how is a fellowship spot available this late into the year? Long story short, I decided to come here and I actually applied to do traditional IR again after my HSS fellowship. And during my time here, actually, that's where I decided, oh, I need to go to Dr. Beal to train with because the reason why I was interested in interventional radiology was because of the variety of the procedures that they're able to do and the number of different organ systems and whatnot that they can really be treating. And it's here when I really kind of found the value in being really, really good at one thing and one thing only. There are a bunch of surgeons here who would only do knee replacement or who specializes in just doing pitcher's elbows or something very obscure in the wrist, but they're so highly subspecialized. And because they are so highly subspecialized, they become true experts in that field. And I really saw the value of being that while being here as a fellow. So I was like, what can I do to really marry the interventional skills with the kind of the imaging background that I have and kind of being the true kind of expert in musculoskeletal intervention. And it happened to be so that a few of my colleagues here or attendings at the time were friends with Dr. Beal. And because I was so into procedures and I was decent at that, they were like, man, you should really go train with this friend I have in Oklahoma. And I was like, Oklahoma? <laughs> what are you talking about? And that's how I, I heard about him. And I took a visit. And also, on a side note, I actually ran into one of the former fellows on an IR interview trail 
Chris Warner. So I met him at Mount Sinai. He was a year ahead of me and he was a fourth year at the time. So I was like, what are you doing? Your only third year is applied to interventional radiology. And he's like, well, I'm going to do this fellowship with a guy out in Oklahoma for a year before doing IR fellowship. And it clicked to me then when one of the guys mentioned here, he's like, hey, there's this guy in Oklahoma. So I was like, oh, that must be the, you know, MSK fellowship that everyone's talking about. So that's a very long-winded story into how I got into MSK intervention. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Ed. Such a great story. And I think that there's a lot in there that's going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this. We have a lot of students, residents listening to this. And I think what you described is such a valuable lesson for all of us, especially in IR, where we, we come in with a lot of an amalgam of interests. And a lot of times, as you said, uh, orthopedics may be in there somewhere. And this is a really exciting time where I feel like musculoskeletal IR is emerging as basically the cousin to orthopedics in the way that VIR is the, that way to vascular surgery. So I think it's really exciting to see that. And for you, I'm sure as disappointing as that was at the time, you found exactly where you needed to be in the end. It's awesome. And so just tell us a little bit about the fellowship with Dr. Beal. I mean, I understand it's extremely malignant, a lot of corporal punishment. <laughs> and so just tell us about your experience with him. So it was a very eye-opening experience. Because I was so into IR from the get-go, I thought, oh, I've seen you know everything. And we for an MSK program, we do a fair amount of intervention here at HSS. So, you know, we do epidurals and kind of biopsies and, you know, obviously injections under ultrasound and, and fluoroscopy all throughout the musculoskeletal system. And when I had arrived there, I essentially had realized that it's essentially a surgical fellowship almost because we are following the patients from day one till, you know, forever, essentially. And it was very clinically driven fellowship and very kind of intervention heavy fellowship. So I loved it. I had a blast. It was, I tell them all the time, it was the best year of my life doing very, very difficult yet rewarding cases. And because of that, you know, I was able to, and I think interventional radiologists, we get very good at image guiding and visualizing things in our mind in a three-dimensional way and putting a needle into exactly where it needs to go, I think is a transferable skill. So once you develop that skill, you can essentially apply it to any other aspect, even if it is a new procedure, as long as you know the anatomy and the potential kind of danger areas. And that's where kind of the image-based training that we have gives a lot of help in that we know where all the nerves are. We know where all the vessels are. These are the potential things that we should not cross. And especially if we're approaching those structures under image guidance, I think there's no one better suited to do some of these interventions. Couldn't agree more and love hearing what you had to say about the fellowship and about how it was more of a surgical specialty. I think that reflects where interventional radiology as a whole is going. I think that in the early days, interventional radiologists became known for being technically excellent and being able to do things that no one else really could, and especially with imaging guidance. And some of those skills have been dispersed to other specialties, especially in this area. I've heard Dr. Beal say there are at least nine different specialties practicing what we would refer to as interventional pain or interventional spine. So you have even neurologists, psychiatrists, and 
family practice doctors, some of them getting into this. And there's a lot we could probably talk about that for an entire show on its own. But I really like the aspect that the training for this really needs to go into the surgical realm, not just in terms of using some of these surgical techniques, but just having that total patient ownership and solving whatever complication kind of comes up and and just dealing with the entire clinical aspect. I did want to share with you, I heard colleagues say this somewhat recently. I, I just thought it was great. They referred to Dr. Beal's fellowship as the Miami vascular of MSK. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought I thought that was a pretty badass description. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Miami Vascular is one of the top IR programs in the country, and I think they became that way, and they were able to do that because they were so clinically driven. Agree completely. And at this point, with nine different specialties, like you said, that can kind of do the same thing that we do. I mean, hopefully, I think Dr. Beal's training is going to set you apart a little bit in terms of technical aspects and and whatnot. But in terms of patient ownership, because that's where the battle is, we can all get along. But I think right now it's going to be the battle of whoever is going to take care of their patients best, because nobody's going to refer out, you know, back in the day, nobody else had the access to the fluoroscopy suite. So they had to refer out these procedures because if they don't have the equipment to do so, they weren't able to do the procedure. Now everyone has a fluoroscopy. Everyone has access to ultrasound machines and whatnot. So the days of just like whoever it is that's referring these patients out, unless they're primary care providers are over where they're just, you know, so you have to learn how to evaluate them, follow them throughout because no one's going to really give you patients or procedures to do anymore at this point. And it's just better for patient care anyway. Yeah. Agree completely with with that last statement. And everything else you said rings really true in terms of there's this misplaced idea in radiology or in IR that reflects kind of the workflow of diagnostic radiology, which is that work will be there. Work will come to you. And I would say, yeah, I think that's true as a hospital-based IR, but If you don't build that practice, you're not really going to like what's going to come to you necessarily. (laughs) So, but that's a good place to segue. I did want to hear a little bit about what's your practice like at HSS. And also you were named chief of IR very soon after starting as faculty. So what was it like to kind of assume that responsibility and how have you kind of gone about all that? So, you know, I was blessed to be promoted so quickly. Uh, I think one of the reasons was there was a lot of support. I think I mentioned that when I was leaving for Dr. Beal's fellowship, that a lot of my colleagues were like, hey, you should really bring all the stuff that he's doing out there back to HSS. And I think once I got back, I had a whole nother skill set that I could really kind of provide to some of these patients that are coming to this hospital and HSS by reputation and by all the metrics is supposed to be the number one orthopedic hospital in the world. And I feel like if we are the number one orthopedic hospital in the world, we should be able to offer number one interventional musculoskeletal radiology services to the hospital as well, instead of the patients having to go out somewhere. We should always be at the cutting edge of everything. And because of my training with Dr. Beal, where I was able to learn new techniques and be really up to date with a lot of these new therapies and interventions that are coming out to treat diseases that we weren't really paying attention to. That's where what really helped me to advance in my career. And once I got back with the support of a lot of my colleagues, of course, and and the orthopedic surgeons, I was able to 
be promoted to that position, which I'm very thankful for. Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about the successes, the setbacks, and kind of the goals you've had. I love the vision that you just laid out. And even in the most ideal situation, you always run into kind of roadblocks and everything. So yeah, tell us about kind of the ups and downs of that. Yeah. And and I think, you know, when you come to these big institutions, there's a lot of obviously turf battles and a lot of inertia in the way. So essentially, when I came back to HSS, given that it's a big academic place, I think we have over 130 orthopedists now. We have over 20 physiatrists and over 10 or something like that interventional pain management folks from anesthesia as well. So it's a very, very big group. And in a big hospital like that, there are a lot of set rules and things were being done a certain way. And and because I was trained to do a lot of these novel therapies and techniques, a lot of the people can be kind of raising an eyebrow into, hey, you know, what are you doing kind of a thing. And that's where really kind of being out there and communicating with your surgical colleagues and, and other physiatrists and pain management folks with data and a lot of new published data really helps to kind of push some of these new therapies forward. So that's what I tried doing when I first got back to essentially meet up with every orthopedic spine surgeon and to meet up with the head of physiatry as well as the pain management group to kind of share what I had learned in Oklahoma and some of the new things that I had learned and what they thought about it, you know, because they're real experts in the field that they're in as well. So in the field of interventional pain, I know there are a lot of new therapies and techniques that are coming out, but we also have to be very vigilant and be systematic in adopting some of these new therapies and not going in blind thinking that it will work just because somebody else says it will work. And that's the way I kind of approached it. Yeah, great point. The last part right there. I think that's really important in this space because there's lots of cool, sexy tech coming out. Everyone wants to use the newest spacer or SI fusion device or whatever. And these are all good things that were, I feel that we're minifying techniques that used to be an open surgical procedure. But I think it's appropriate to say, hey, what is the data on this, especially the safety data and the efficacy data? And so it's really important, like you said, that we continue to have a very, very staunch scientific approach to these new things as they come out. And so what are some of the areas where you've had success in implementing some of your offerings? I think treating kind of anterior column pain, whether it be anesthetic discograms that I've been doing. Obviously, I brought on spine jack, kyphoplasty, sacroplasty. I was the, the first one in the hospital to do it. Basivertebral nerve ablation, speaking in terms of anterior column pain. I was the first in the hospital to do it because, you know, I learned with Dr. Beal. And so I think treatment, a lot of this anterior column issues in the spine, that's what a lot of people were receptive to because any good orthopedic spine surgeon will tell you, like, we don't like operating for back pain unless it's a scoliotic patient or unstable patient. And the surgeons here are the best in the world. So they like to have sound surgical and clinical judgment in terms of who they operate on and the indications that they pick. So they know that unless they're having radiculopathy or weakness in their lower limbs or upper limbs, back surgery for back pain is 50-50, at least on published data so far. So they're always looking for other options to treat these patients, which are often challenging. And a lot of these patients are on the younger side as well, which also makes it challenging. So because I was able to kind of offer some of the 
newer therapies for this challenging problem, they were willing to kind of send me their patients. Beautiful. And you actually naturally answered my next question in advance, which was kind of moving into our, our stated focus for the day, which is the disc. And I think you've outlined really nicely why this is something that people should care about and that it's a source of a lot of back pain, perhaps even the number one cause of back pain, stable discogenic disc pain. And so it's a super prevalent problem, but it's not really been talked about a whole lot yet. But if you look in the literature, a lot of these disc access based techniques, they go back decades. I was really surprised to learn about that. And so only recently, it seems like we're starting to get kind of more of a focus on this. And so let's take a step back a little bit and talk about why should people care about the disc? What does it do? How do you talk to patients about this? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I think it's well known that it's the most common cause of low back pain, low axial chronic back pain. And so it is the most common, yet it's the area where we lack a lot of good therapies for, and yet there hasn't been, it's like the holy grail, right? We still haven't solved fully how to treat degenerative disc disease, you know? And so as we know that as the patients get older, you know, the pain source goes from the disc to the facets. So a lot of majority of these 30, 40, 50 year olds with chronic axial back pain is going to be discogenic in nature. And because we don't have the therapies yet to fully treat some of these issues, uh, that's where the difficulty comes. And obviously, we're making a lot of new techniques, which are coming out that seems to be promising, but nothing has kind of solved it wholly like a kyphoplasty would for vertebral compression fracture, right? So it's still a very difficult process for the patients to go through. And sometimes it works. It's great. Sometimes the patients, it's disappointing, but you have to be realistic with them in that, okay, 75%. And that's where the literature really comes in. And that if you know your literature, you can at least quote them, hey, three out of the four patients in this trial with, you know, let's say 218 patients were responders and their average pain response was decrease in pain is to about 65 to 70%. So when I'm having these discussions with patients, I essentially just recite them the data that has been available to me so far. Fantastic. One of the challenging things about the disc, it seems like, is like you said, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. And when we look at degenerative disc disease, it's a kind of heterogeneous. And so an 86-year-old with a completely collapsed modified Fuhrman grade 8 disc and anaerolisthesis is different than a 35-year-old with some desiccation and annular fissures and stuff like that. So what you're alluding to and looking at these trials and the, the numbers they give us, it comes back to very careful patient selection. So you're a musculoskeletal radiologist through and through. Tell us about how do you work up these patients? You know, Do you just get the MRI? Do you do anything more special? I've heard some interesting stuff about like MR spectroscopy any kind of secret sauce that you're using to try to evaluate these patients? Well, I think typically A, patients with discogenic back pain, it goes back to evaluating the symptoms first, right? Because if you, and like I tell my patients, if you scan 100 people walking down the street without any back pain or leg pain at all, you'll find all sorts of herniations, annular fissures, facet arthritis, pinched nerves, right? So that's what makes spine care very challenging in that, okay, if there's osteoarthritic change in the hip joint and they hurt in the hip, 
they've gotten a few hip injections and that has helped. We have narrowed down the etiology of their pain to their hip and they can get a hip replacement if their cartilage has worn down. But in spine, unless they're 18 or 20 year olds with just single level degenerative disc disease or patients with just right-sided sciatica with right-sided herniated disc, overall, the chronic low back pain patients are difficult to evaluate just off of imaging because there are so many different findings, especially as you get older. So it's marrying the patient's symptoms to the imaging findings that we see. So usually patients with discogenic back pain is going to have midline back pain, which gets worse with flexion or axial loading. And so those are kind of the usual symptoms that I look for. And then once I know that, okay, after evaluating the patient, this is likely discogenic, then I confirm it with the MRI. And as we know, the two more specific findings that we can see on the MRI for causing axial back pain is M-plate edema or an annular fissure. So those are the more two specific reasons for why they might be having low back pain. Otherwise, I look for the most degenerated disc. Excellent. And then from there, tell us about your pathway. We're going to get into talking about the different options available. I definitely want to hear about that. Start by talking about your anesthetic discogam approach. I'd like to hear, I think this is a great topic for uh, all our listeners because discography is sort of a lost art among radiologists, at least right now. So tell us a little bit about the actual technical aspect of it and then how that's involved in the treatment paradigm. Sure. And I think discography is becoming a lost art, obviously, because of some of the published data talking about accelerated disc degeneration once the annulus has been disrupted by a needle. And especially if you use a bigger needle, there's a higher chance of the disc degenerating. But same thing with any type of procedures that we do, there's always benefits and risks, right? So that's the discussion I have with some of the patients in that, okay, if we do a knee injection, we know that some of the anesthetics that we use and even steroids can be chondrotoxic. So does that mean we do not do knee injections for patients with osteoarthritic change, even with kids that are having severe inflammatory response, secondary to juvenile idiopathic arthropathy, we'll treat them with intraarticular injection of steroids. So it's kind of weighing the risks versus the benefits in that, hey, are you having one out of two pain? If you're having one or two out of 10 pain and you can get by with AVO, we're not going to do anything to the disc. You're getting physical therapy and most discogenic pain will hopefully burn out in the next few years as more than likely. But for instance, I have one figure skater who came to me. She had a history of Sherman's disease, essentially, where the end plates are irregular and she has a little bit of kyphosis. It's not a complete Sherman's in that she didn't have the severe kyphosis that we normally see, but she had multi-level degenerative disc disease in the thoracic spine. And she had gone to all these world-renowned places where she had epidurals, medial branch blocks, even PRP injections, ablations, you name it, she's had it. And on patients like that, yes, we know that the disc might degenerate a little faster, but at that point, she's not able to function and do the things that she really wants to do. And so that's the real discussion I have with them. Yes, there is a risk of early disc degeneration, but at the same time, you already have degenerated discs at that level. And B, you're not really able to do the things that you enjoy or really want to do. So those are the types of discussions that I have with the patient before proceeding with the anesthetic discogram. 
fantastic information. You know, this is all obviously part of a, a good informed consent. So love those points, especially because we need to make sure above all, we're not making anything worse. And like you said, I think a lot of people are, are very familiar with this aspect in the knee, like you talked about. And so people are, you know, starting to kind of limit their approach to intraarticular steroids a little bit more. Excellent perspective on that. And so you decide to go ahead with anesthetic discogram. And so this is kind of a diagnostic exam as well as therapeutic. So how, how does that go? So I mix in 4% lidocaine. You know, the more concentrated it is, the better, because unless they have a firman, modified firminate where there's vacuum phenomenon within the disc and there's tons of space, if it's a very intact annulus fibrosis with a little bit of degeneration in the nucleus, there's not a lot of room for the volume of injectate to actually take up. So the more concentrated the lidocaine, the better it is. That's why we use 4% lidocaine. And I actually mix in a milliliter of dexamethasone for the anti-inflammatory effects. And in my experience, I think it actually has a far better effect in terms of the durability in the thoracic spine. For some reason, it seemed to be a treatment in the thoracic spine. When it comes to lumbar spine, obviously there isn't a ton of data published on this, so I'm kind of going off my personal experience. Patients get great relief, but the effects don't last as long in the thoracic spine. Interesting. And so you mentioned the thoracic spine. Of course, the most common area that this is going to be used is the lumbar spine. Those obviously have different considerations based on the anatomy. Could you tell us just about the technical approach to each of those briefly? And are you a fluoro guy? You ever use CT? What's the approach there? Well, training on the Dr. Beal, I'm always a fluoro guy first. And so I do do all my discograms under fluoroscopy. Especially because, yes, you can tilt the gantry on the CT scan, but there's a, a level of kyphosis or low doses depending on where you are in the thoracic spine or the lumbar spine, right? And it's really hard to line up the disc unless you can really get that caudal or cranial tilt of the II or the image intensifier. So first, we square off the end plates. That's the number one and most important thing. And the challenging things about the thoracic spine is that you might actually have to go through the costo transverse junction. And I would say up to about T5, T6, you can get in without too much problem underneath or through the costo transverse junction and into the Cambens triangle, which is made up by the superior articular process, the transversing nerve root, and the inferior or the superior end plate of the level below. And so thoracic spine is just like the lumbar spine, except that sometimes the ribs can get in the way. And I often use, if I can't get through the costal transverse junction as easily, I might, instead of using a 22 gauge needle, I might size up to a 20 gauge uh, needle just for uh, more rigidity and support as I'm transversing through. Got it. A little more pushability on that. Sure. Nice. And you, you had actually said this to me the other day that the number of people that could actually do a thoracic discogram is pretty low, actually. So the, that ability is pretty special, but it's something that I think to your point earlier, as a radiologist in our background, we can take the imaging guidance, our innate understanding of the anatomy and the three-dimensional topography and understand, okay, we're not going to hit anything here as long as we take the correct approach. So I think that's awesome. 
So we've talked about the techniques for disc access. Now, tell us a little bit about the actual therapeutic options that are available. There's a lot of cool stuff coming out right now, stuff that's still being evaluated. And I do want to hear specifically about your involvement with the VAST trial. So tell us a little bit about the different options, ViaDisc especially, and how you got to be involved in all that. Right. And to my knowledge, I think ViaDisc is ViaDisc NP now because of the FDA regulations, they had to take the cells out of the compound. So essentially, we're injecting kind of morselized and ground up nucleus pulposus into the disc at this point without the cells because of the uh, FDA regulations that recently came down. So I think ViaDisc NP is the only thing that's available that we can inject allograft-wise into the disc. I know in, in the regenerative medicine space, there's a lot of people injecting like PRP, BMAC, and all these kind of, what should I call it, embryonic kind of stem cells, quote unquote, in these pain clinics. But I think ViaDisc is, MP is the only one that has been studied and has gone through a phase three trial and is shown to be uh, efficacious and safe to use in terms of allograft in- injection versus the other kind of autologous injections that are being tried in these pain clinics. Uh, really interesting. As you said, so the kind of initial formulation of ViaDisc was in addition to the morselized nucleus pulposus also had stem cells, which are harvested from, to my understanding, cadaveric disc. Yeah, of the end plates, actually. They of were the getting, end, ground up yeah. end plates, right. Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting thing. And again, we could talk about this for hours and hours on its own, the issues of kind of stem cells, but it comes down to, at the moment, at least, as you said, the FDA regulation, which is the same as with PRP. Insurance, as it stands, is not going to pay for PRP injections because it's not a drug that has been kind of studied in this clinical context of a trial and that kind of thing. So injecting PRP into a disc versus a knee versus foramen magnum, I don't know, is, you know, how are you going to study all those things separately? So I think that's a super interesting area on its own. I think there's a lot of people who are very interested in studying this. And obviously the whole field of regenerative medicine is really focusing on these kind of things. So that being said, we don't currently have the ViaDisc Deluxe or whatever you want to call it available to use, but Tell us a little bit about the ViaDisc NP. Right. And I think the clinical trial is being run right now, to my understanding, for the ViaDisc NP. I think I uh, uh, misspoke. So the original ViaDisc was phase three trial and there were aftermarket studies. ViaDisc NP is currently being evaluated for its efficacy M19. And I kind of had the, due to Dr. Beal, I had the kind of purview of the data that's been coming out. And it seems on par with the ViaDisc data in terms of the pain reduction and and ODI improvement. So, you know, obviously, just like in the paper, it's best for younger patients with Fearman grade around three to six. The younger, the better. And this is essentially to kind of give them extra cushioning, if you will, because as we know, once the disc starts to degenerate, the first thing that happens is all the water starts moving out of the disc itself and the proteoglycans start decreasing and, and all that. So, when we can kind of almost give the disc an extra cushion, I think that's in theory how it's helping some of these patients with discogenic back. And with the stem cells, just to jump back on that, it seems like the idea on that is to try to sort of reverse this cascade of degeneration. 
What do you think about with it, injecting the nucleus pulposus? Is there any kind of aspect of that that you expect, or do you think this is purely kind of a mechanical thing that's going on? Well, you know, that's very interesting, but it's very hard to, you know, harvest someone's disc once we put it in. Like, so it's really hard to do an in vivo study on these human subjects, right? Like after we inject them, but at least we know with the cells and with all these exosomes and whatnot, when we inject it, we know there's a lot of cell signaling within the cells and within the disc itself. And we haven't gotten to a point where we really can understand what's going on on a cellular level. Yeah, in a petri dish and in vitro studies, we can kind of see that the cells are communicating and maybe they're, you know, changing the gene expression depending on what cells are around them and what exosomes are around them. But currently, we can only guess in terms of how it's working. And NP, because, or ViaDisc NP, because it doesn't have any cells to begin with, I don't know if it's truly regenerating the disc versus providing that extra cushion and and the extra water content for the disc itself. Yeah, really interesting topic to think about. And I'm sure there'll be more science coming through on that, especially as regenerative medicine is a very hot topic. And I think it's clear that the future of medicine, or at least this is this is my own perspective, the future of medicine will definitely move in a less invasive and more hopefully regenerative way as much as guys like us love hardware and love cool devices to to get hardware in and stabilize problems if we can you know stop the cascade at some point that's kind of like the holy grail of what we're trying to do with minimally invasive medicine but like you said i'm sure there's going to be a lot more basic and translational science that's going to have to happen between now and and that distant, you know, a lot of very scary biochemical signaling pathway diagrams that <laughs> probably give us all some PTSD to biochem in college, at least me personally. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Yeah, in a few years, we'll, we'll get to a point where we know the exact genome that causes degenerative disc disease and we can like almost splice it out, you know? Yeah. I feel like that's certainly a possibility in, in the future. And an interventional radiologist will probably be the first to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so awesome. You, you had that exposure being uh, involved with the VAST trial. And so the results are out. It was in uh, Pain Physician Journal in 2021. As you said, more data cooking on the ViaDisc NP. And so that's just kind of uh, one or, or two options that are available. And you mentioned kind of the BMAC, PRP, and these other kind of things that are available as well. And just to give a little preview, Dr. Beal has mentioned before the aspect of intradiscal hydrogel, and that's definitely something we'll cover on the show later. We're actually having your colleague or, or maybe nemesis Olivier Clerk on later on. So we'll get kind of more of the scoop on the, the hydrogel fix a flat. Sure. So tell us, is your practice currently sort of anesthetic discogram to confirm and possibly treat and then in which patients would you offer any of the other intradiscal therapies? Well, you know, I think you mentioned this already. In the regenerative pain space, the insurance companies don't cover these therapies, even though they will cover hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of hardware and, and surgery. They refuse to pay for some of these uh, more novel therapies that are far less invasive and far less costly for the healthcare system. But I hope that in the future, we can kind of get to a place where there's enough data and we do enough studies so that these 
therapies are available to the patients that can't afford it. Because essentially, at this point, for Viadisc NP, unless they're a Medicare patient, you essentially would have to charge them cash, which is tens of thousands of dollars, including facility fees and, and the product and all that stuff. So I offer it to some of my patients who are Medicare covered, but most of the patients who need this are patients in their 20s and 30s and, and 40s. And, you know, it's very hard to have a discussion with somebody if it's absolutely not going to be 100% effective in treating this pain, which I'm not sure of, you know, I think in the Viadix study, there was about a 70 to 75% responder rate with great pain response. So if you're one out of four, it's really hard to be like, hey, you know, the whole procedure is going to cost $20,000, $30,000 and one in four chance it might not work. I, I just don't yeah, feel comfortable. It's a hard sell. Right. It's a very hard sell. So currently I'm getting away with mostly anesthetic discograms for a lot of these patients. And actually, I think you've talked about basivertebral nerve ablation before, but I've been using anesthetic discogram to kind of solidify the diagnosis in some of these patients with kind of multi-originated back pain. Because I think if you're 60, you're going to have a little bit of facet pain. You're going to have a little bit of vertebrogenic back pain. You're going to have a little bit of neurogenic claudication. So I think in some of those patients with multifocal back pain, it kind of helps me in diagnosing anterior column pain and be like, hey, you tried the medial branch block for the facet originated pain. Okay, you did some of the back pain went away, but then there's still that anterior or midline back pain. Let's see if it numbs out with the anesthetic discogram. Boom, the pain went away. Okay, let's set you up for basal nerve ablation if you have the type one or type two modic change. So I've been using the anesthetic discogram for a lot of those patients as a confirmation of diagnosis rather than treating them to get them to the via disc as much as or intradiscal therapy as much as I want to. It's just financially not possible for most patients. Yeah, thanks for all that explanation, A, on kind of the overlap or lack thereof of the patients who need these therapies and the patients who are covered for it under Medicare, which is kind of interesting. And just a sidebar of that, is that just because private payers haven't jumped on with covering it as well? Right, exactly. Medicare is it for now. Uh, and because a lot of the, it's like the PRP injection, it's going to be deemed as experimental. And, you know, even basal nerve ablation, even with its extensive data and publications and whatnot, even then, you know, it takes a few months sometimes to get it approved by the commercial payers. And sometimes it just gets denied outright, even though you go through even like outside review. It's very frustrating. I hope with time, those kind of things will become less prominent. But one thing we've seen in the interventional radiology community is like, these are fights that kind of have to be fought. And unfortunately, I see on the SIR digest every once in a while, hey, this company is trying to deny uterine vein embolization, basically related to venous, pelvic venous congestion. And other things like this, denying UFIs or PAE is much more common, but even UFIs, it's like, we've been doing this for decades. The data <laughs> is really good. This is a great procedure. We're still having to fight this. It's really, it's really aggravating. And so I hope that we can really work on continuing to push out solid data and get these to be more accepted by the payers. And they're obviously not in a real rush to do this, but hopefully with wider adoption of these therapies and the demand from patients 
for them to be available. I hope that we'll start to see that change with time. That's the optimist in me. And I, I do want to talk about, you brought up basal nerve ablation, which is another great topic uh, we're hoping to cover in, in depth soon. This overlap between discogenic and vertebrogenic back pain, which gets back to your, your earlier point about anterior column pain. The diagnosis of these is really uh, can be difficult to elucidate. And so it seems all to be related. I mean, we have the disc sort of in plate complex. And so these things seems to me it's on more of a spectrum than anything. And really using the clinical findings in conjunction with the imaging findings, namely the modic changes or, or lack thereof, and then combining that with the anesthetic discogram to confirm that level is the pain generator, you can sort of decide from there what's your better option to use, whether that's going to be something to treat vertebrogenic pain or maybe into an intradiscal therapy, kind of depending on all that. So what do you think about that? I mean, it seems like a bit, a kind of a, a difficult diagnostic conundrum between those two types of pain. Right. And obviously in the SMART trial and intracept trial and all those trials, essentially they've kind of related the vertebrogenic pain to the modic changes. Now, you know, my question is, you know, and we don't know the answer to this, if there is an absence of modic change, does that mean that they don't, there is no vertebrogenic pain component? I don't think so, mm -hmm. you know, personally, because there's Schmerl's nodes all the time without modic change. And obviously we know that the disc communicates with the end plate and there's a lot of vascularity that comes down and that's where the nutrients come down. And we know that the sinovertebral and basovertebral nerve plexus clearly communicates within the disc and the end plate. So there's a lot of things that are going on in there that we do not yet know of, but those are the available kind of imaging modalities and diagnosis that we currently have and the treatment. So they isolated in those studies to type one and type two modic change, but it might be very interesting to be like, okay, if we took a hundred people with positive discography at L4-5 and did BVN ablation, does that mean that it's not going to work just because we think the pain is purely discogenic versus vertebrogenic? And I don't know if there is a clear kind of border between the two where we can separate those two out sometimes. So I think it's still a very challenging thing, but at least we are now finally being able to offer a few options that might be effective. And I think a lot of the trainees and, and physicians don't look for anterior column back pain just because we haven't had any therapies that were available other than, you know, fusion surgery and doing provocative discography. There hasn't been any type of therapy. So if there's no real therapy for it, why are we even looking for it kind of a thing? So it's like a bad cycle. But at least now, because we have some of these newer therapies that might help with these in treating some of these patients, I think that's where we really have to look because as, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it is the most common cause of low back pain versus anything else, whether it be sacroiliac pain, facet pain, whatever it is, it's the most common cause of their back pain. Agreed 100% on, on everything you said. And I think the fact that this we're in this kind of twilight area where our techniques and our ability to treat things is kind of ahead of where the science is. And so it's like, yeah, could we do BVN ablation for this person with discogenic back pain, but no discernible modic changes? And could it work? Potentially, but we just, we don't really have that science yet. 
And then also you mentioned kind of the limitations of the actual imaging evaluation of that, namely with the, with the modic changes. And to your point, you mentioned Scheuermann's a few times, and that's a really interesting disease. And I think it's really difficult because pretty regularly see on LinkedIn, hey, here's a 30-year-old with Scheuermann's who was fused 10 years ago and now is kind of having the issues to deal with that. And so in Scheuermann's, they have all these in-plate irregularities, lots of schmoral nodes and stuff. And I've kind of taken up an interest in, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but in schmoral nodes and kind of thinking about them because I think that they're kind of like the fat containing inguinal hernia of the spine, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, yes, well yeah, said. you mention it, but what's the point? But I think it does seem, uh, and the Schwerman's being kind of a prototypical example of this, that the schmoral nodes signify a deficiency in the disc and plate complex, suggesting, you know, that there is an element of disease there. And of course, from time to time, I've seen this a lot recently, once I started kind of keeping my eye open to it, if you give contrast on a lumbar spine MRI, a lot of times these schmoral nodes enhance, some of them do, and others don't. And it kind of makes me wonder, I wonder if that patient is having kind of an acute flare of vertebrogenic pain because of the end plate kind of breaking down. You know, and maybe BVN would be great for something like that. But any thoughts on that? Or am I just going way too far in the weeds on this? I love that this is a very conversational podcast. But I, I think what I would encourage you to look at is, does that enhancement correlate with edema? Can you see edema on stir? And if there is edema, does that mean it is enhancing? So I think it would be very interesting to look at that data if you have those cases to be like, okay, there's an enhancement. Is there a hyperintensity on stir imaging to show that there's inf inflammation? And on a side note, when there are bigger schmerls nodes like that and type 1 modic change, which I have seen and have been referred patients for BVN ablation, that's where it becomes a little bit challenging because obviously we're trying to get the needle into the posterior one half to one third of the vertebral body about one half of the way up. But at the same time, if the Schmerl's node is big enough, it's going to start getting very close to the region of the area or the ablation zone, right? And we don't know what the consequences might be. Okay, does that, okay, technically it's already a vertebral compression fracture, right? Because it's the end plate is already violated and the disc is herniating into the vertebral body. But what's going to happen if we ablate around that area? And I don't know. I think Dr. Beal has talked about augmenting those with PMMA before for painful kind of Schmerl's nodes and with lots of edema, but I don't know what to make of it in terms of trying to do BVN ablation on some of those patients with the big Schmerl's nodes and type 1 modic change, but the Schmerl's node is quite close to the, the basivertebral kind of venous plexus that enters there. That's a really tricky situation that you've just described, and I think illustrates a point that's come up a few times is that we're operating in areas where we don't have a homogeneous clinical trial to tell us what is the best way to treat this specific issue. And that's one of the difficulties with spine care and with studying all these things that goes for spine surgery and other more conservative things, because we're not dealing with a single L4 or 5 disc or, you know, L4, L5 vertebrogenic components. It's multi-level. And then of course, like we've talked about, you have the diagnostic dilemma, but even assuming with your diagnostic skills, imaging, clinical exam and injections, you narrow it down to this is the pain generator. 
that like a situation where you've just described where there's a huge schmoral node potentially getting in your way of the BVN or being at risk of your ablation zone in the BVN. It's like, what do you do there? And we're never going to have the clinical, a specific clinical trial to answer that question. And so that's where I think interventional radiologists excel is bringing together the disparate tools in our toolkit and kind of thinking like engineers, plumbers <laughs> is, is the old term. I think we're more like civil engineers in this area and thinking about how can we use these tools and solve this problem. And of course, we have to do that all while dancing around insurance issues and uh, other institutional kind of things. But it's an exciting part of what we do to have these very specific problems to try to solve that no one else probably even thinks about. <laughs> right. And I think that's one of the real benefits of some of these ablations and new therapies, because for me, it's a little bit of a more comfortable conversation to be had with the patient, because let's say I try the BVN ablation. There's nothing permanently being implanted inside, right? There's nothing permanently being fused or a screw being placed. If it doesn't work, at the end of the day, the only risk was the anesthesia and then obviously the needle placement itself. And so that's where I find comfort in discussing some of these therapies because it's like, hey, listen, this might not help, but this does not exclude any of the other therapies that might be available further down the road, including surgery. And it's the same day procedure and you can kind of walk out of there afterwards and it works great. If it doesn't, you know, it's sad, but we haven't done anything to really, you know, harm you or put you out of indication for other therapies down the road. Sure. You're not burning any bridges. Right. That's great. And so that actually segues really nicely into my next question. You kind of have a knack for that. It's like you got the questions in advance, but no, we're, we're just having a conversation and you've naturally come on to what I want to talk about next, which is how can interventional radiologists, whether that's, you know, the VIR guys out in community practice, or maybe musculoskeletal or neuroradiology colleagues, whether that's in an academic setting or maybe a less common private practice setting. How can they kind of integrate disc work into their practice? What were your first steps in doing that and any tips as they get started on that? It's interesting that you mentioned that because essentially in radiology, we say like your attendings will tell you, I'm sure you're going to miss if you don't look for it, right? Because you're going to blow right past the abnormality. And I think as long as we are mindful of the symptoms that I've talked about before, which will be, you know, pain with flexion, axial loading, sitting down, the typical imaging findings of annular tears or type 1 motor change. And of course, if they're really osteoporotic, then vertebral compression fractures, right? And those are essentially are going to be all of the imaging findings and the clinical symptoms of anterior column pain. So if you're seeing back pain patients, it being the most common cause of back pain, discogenic and vertebrogenic, there's no way it has certainly seen you. That's what Dr. Beal says. If it, it, You might not have seen it, but it has certainly seen you. So if you pay attention to these clinical symptoms and imaging findings, there's no way you'll, you'll miss it. And then once you can diagnose it, then you can offer some of these you know, therapies for it. That's awesome. And I, I really agree with that. And that's something I've really been trying to do ever since I got interested in this area is when I'm reading the diagnostic imaging. I make it sort of an exercise for myself. How would I treat 
what's going on here or what, what are the potential pain generators? And I was talking to Dr. Michaels about this a few months ago. I feel like once you stop looking at the spine MRI as just this intimidating thing with just a million things you have to talk about and more of a puzzle of what are the things here that could be causing trouble and kind of what's the most likely. Personally, I started sort of thinking about what are the potential causes of axial back pain? What are the potential causes of uh, radicular type pain? I feel like if you break that down a little bit, you've already separated it almost into anterior column and, and more sort of posterior column issues or issues of the, the nerves themselves being compressed. Do you have any kind of special approach when you're reading spine MRI, any, any sort of, you know, just mode that you've come on as you've started treating more of these things interventionally? Well, I think it's difficult because as radiologists, a lot of the times we haven't physically examined the patient and, or seen them in person. So if you're working as a radiologist and you're reading a lumbar MRI on not your own patient, unless there are very clear history or there is a very clear history and surgical or a surgical or symptomatic background that's given, it's very difficult. So you just have to read what's on the film, right? And you have to take a very systematic approach and you have to come up with a routine so that you don't forget to mention something. Because sometimes the downside of like, okay, there's a patient coming in with right L4 radic and a surgeon here is very good with history. So they put potential right four radic and you find the, the finding L3-4 subarticular disc protrusion that's hitting the transversing L4 nerve root down below. And you make that finding and then you miss this huge tumor that's in the liver. And that's what makes it difficult to be a radiologist. So as a radiologist and a, as a diagnostic radiologist, I recommend and I try to be very systematic and have a routine in terms of a routine search pattern in terms of how I dictate my cases. In terms of how I look at my own studies, it's a far different experience because I like, okay, patient has zero radiculopathy. I could really care less if there is severe stenosis at L4-5 impinging the L4 nerve root. Like I couldn't care, right? Like the patient's not hurting from it. So when I look at it that way, it makes looking at MRIs far faster than trying to look for the inguinal hernias and tumors. But that's what we get paid for, right? Like we get paid, of course, to make the diagnosis of L4 radiculopathy, but to not miss a lot of these incidental findings that some of our colleagues might miss when there are surgical surgeons and whatnot. And that's what we're being relied on for to not miss other things. Because they're going to like if you in this day and age, if, if you're a surgeon and you've had recent training, like you're going to be able to diagnose an L4 herniation, disc herniation and get the correct level. But in short sense, I far prefer to look at my own patient's imaging because I know exactly the type of symptom that I, that I have and I know exactly where I'm looking at. So I'm not looking at all the other impingements and foraminal stenosis for those patients. So that makes it far easier. Yeah, definitely easier, I'm sure. But all those hours you spent, you know, reading hundreds or thousands of spine MRIs and having that search pattern is what allows you to see the patient, hear what they're describing, open up their MRI, boom, there it is. Because as you said, not all things that look painful cause pain. <laughs> right. And the patient's biggest complaint is not always going to be correlating with the obvious finding. And I mean, how many times have you had it? I've definitely had it a few where the history is right sciatica and they come in 
and they've got like some mild stenosis at four or five on the right. And then their exiting left nerve root is just completely crushed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. they're not, they're not feeling that at all. And you know, who knows why that is exactly, but the imaging findings just do not always correlate with the clinical story. And so as interventional radiologists, we have the gift of actually talking to the patient and hearing from them exactly what it is and just zoning your focus down on that MRI. It's like having a laser in to what you need to target. Right. And I think I will say this, you know, having looked at a bunch of them, and I think that's why sometimes the surgeons get very good at looking at MRIs is because they see the MRI and they go in and they operate on those patients, right? So you have a very good kind of correlation between the disease on the MRI and disease in live person. And same thing goes with image-guided procedures. You, The way we differentiate ourselves is, okay, oh yeah, technically basovertebral plexus is about one half way up, one, about one half to one third you know, way back within the vertebral body. But especially S1 segments, you'll know that it's about one third of the way up, not one half. And everyone's BVN, the way the venous plexus enters, is, might be different, right? And if you know that, you need to be as accurate in terms of placing the needle there as possible. Same thing with epidural injections. Let's say there's a herniation, intraforaminal herniation pushing the nerve up. Then you know that if you push the needle too far in into the neural foramen, even in the usual safe triangle space, that posterior superior aspect of where the nerve runs, you might still pierce the cord or pierce the exiting nerve root because the herniation is pushing that up. So you have to take an account for that, right? And that's where I think the real value comes in for us in that we're looking at the MRI and we're thinking three-dimensionally where the herniation and the nerve root is on the x-ray, even though you might not see the nerve root or the disc herniation itself. Absolutely. That's, a, that's such a great point because we think and we, we see where that disc is and we know Okay, Camden's triangle is not, it's kind of a face, you know, and so you have to adjust your approach accordingly, even for something as simple as a transforaminal epidural injection. So I think that's great. I love that. I've loved that aspect of my training where I feel like the imaging has just kind of seeped more into my brain. And so you stop seeing it as much as just a collection of the images as sort of a blueprint for you for, for what you need to do. So I agree completely on that. Tell me about some of the things you're excited about in MSK interventions, whether that's disc-related stuff or, or something to the side. What are you really excited about that's coming down the pipeline? I'm a sucker for vertebral augmentation because as much as I love discogenic back pain and vertebrogenic back pain, and I love doing intradiscal therapies and whatnot, I think you know the reason why I love you know, treating vertebral compression fracture is like, without a shadow of a doubt, I can be like, it's like the hip orthoplasty of orthopedic surgery, where like with over 90% confidence, you could tell the patient you're going to feel better. You know, same thing with vertebral augmentation. Patients come writhing in pain, you fix them, and they walk literally right out and there's nothing better than that. So in vertebral augmentation space, obviously, Dr. Sanfoni in Switzerland has published a lot on balloon stenting, and stabilization with the pedicle screws to follow. And hopefully we can get that here because that we can fix lytic lesions better in the vertebral body. We can fix unstable fractures, you know, three column fractures. I just, I was on call over the weekend. I just saw a case 
And instead of doing on a 30 or 40 year old, like, you know, two level up, two level down, skipping the vertebral body fusion hardware, you can place cement and some two screws, two tiny little screws in to stabilize the anterior column and kind of buttress it with the posterior column and you're done, right? So I'm very excited and hopefully we can get that to America soon. Yeah, that's actually my number one as well is getting safe over here. That's S-A-I-F. And this is not the first time we've discussed this on the show. We're fans of Dr. Sianfoni's work for sure. And he also had a paper earlier this year that was looking at this technique in the particular context of vertebra plana and amazing results with that in terms of the height restoration. And so it's having a more versatile tool to fix the problems. And vertebra plana is just one of those ones where it's so frustrating. It's so hard to deal with because once it's gotten like that and it's all sclerotic, it's like there's not really a whole lot else that you can do. So if we can just basically balloon that thing open, put in some ovoid stents and then fill it with cement with the screws in place to bridge it to the posterior column, I mean, it's perfect. And like you said, it also works really well for the traumatic cases. And you mentioned the idea of the spanning pedicle screw and rod construct. It's something that I have thought about a lot as well, because in my residency, we see a lot of trauma. So I see these situations frequently from, from the door to months post-op. And it is a, an, an accepted therapy by the, the entire worldwide spine community. And so it's not to say, hey, why would you crazy people put hardware in this 30-year-old person? I mean, this is the accepted technique and it does work in the sense that you're stabilizing a very unstable injury. But, you know, we, we think about things like the, the downstream effects of it. And what if this patient has lost the follow-up and they heal their fracture, but they never have their hardware out. And to me, it just makes so much more sense. If you can fix that with a few percutaneous devices through two poke holes, then why wouldn't you do that? And right now the answer is because we don't, we don't have it available. So, <laughs> so this is us yelling at all the, or begging pleading all the spine companies in the U.S. bring the vertebral body stents over here. We're ready for them. Yeah. And the real holy grail will be not cementing, but like having a let differ injectate for these patients. Because PMMA obviously is, it's great at fixing or fixating things, but it's very, very hard. So if we can have a softer construct that still has the rigidity to provide structural support initially, and as it has like osteoconductive and inductive properties, if it can incorporate into the bone rather than having this hard cement be in there, I think that will be the, the ultimate holy grail of augmentation. So yeah, something that I think about all the time. Same. And I, I think it's, it's really fun to think about and hopefully we'll be, I'm sure we're continuing to move in that direction, but yeah, I can't wait to see 15 years from now, what the state of the art and vertebral augmentation is. Cause like you said, getting to something that's more physiologic, you know, that's like the lost bone is what we want to get to. Because of course our vertebra are not made out of some hard cement, you know, and so having something that's provides the necessary structural stability, but is more physiologic and that we're curing it in one shot, we're taking care of the problem. And it, that is done, that fracture is done, 
and then we can treat their osteoporosis and get the underlying stuff taken care of. I agree. Holy grail material right there. Well, Ed, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I think our listeners are really going to as well. So before we wrap up, any other things, any other thoughts you want to share, any projects you're working on or anything you want to talk about? No, uh, just thank you for having me. It's anterior column pain is something that I am really passionate about. And whether it be compression fractures or discogenic back pain or vertebrogenic back pain, I hope to see a lot of the new therapies that are going to come out in the future and hoping to be a good steward and using some of these therapies to treat some of these more challenging patients. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you for already being a great steward of these procedures and, and your work at the Hospital for Special Surgery, doing the specialty proud. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.